All right, I hope you have your Bibles open. This is it. This is the final sermon in this series. I have absolutely loved this series called the Wonder Woman series. And you're going to be in, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, you're going to be in page 842. If you brought your own Bible, it is Mark chapter 7. Let's get our Bibles open. Can every single one of us have a Bible open in front of us? We are a Bible-preaching church, and I would love for everybody to bring your own Bible every week and mark it up. Take down some notes, things that uh, we're teaching you, some insights or maybe even insights that you've gleaned from other teachers and pastors or your own study. But let, let's get your Bible and let's bring it to church and let's really get in that and look deeply at it. We're going to look at the power of a praying mother. And moms, I want to tell you right now, you, I don't know if you truly grasp, I really don't think you truly grasp the power that you have and praying for your children specifically. It is, I think, beyond anything that you are even capable. And it's not because you're not intelligent. It's not because you're not mature. It's just so big. It's so massive. I don't think I understand it. I don't think anybody really gets it. Power of prayer is amazing, especially when it's flowing out of the heart of a mother for her children. And we have mothers in our church, by the way. This is, this is absolutely hilarious. They have actually prayed girls out of their son's lives because they were destructive girlfriends. I've seen that happen on more than one occasion. I mean, she, this one particular mother, but it's been more than one, down on her knees, Lord, that woman is bad for my son. Please get her gone. And she was gone in less than two weeks. She's still alive, by the way. I mean, God's not... I just want to make sure that's clear. We have wives in our church who have prayed their husbands into career moves that have been a whole lot less stress and a lot more time with their families. We have women in this church of Cornerstone who have prayed addicts into freedom from captivity. It's been amazing what I've seen God do through the earnest, passionate prayer of a woman. And especially... A mother. The Wonder Woman we're about to look at in this final sermon in this series is going to be requiring you, as you've already figured out, to be moving into the New Testament. It's the only one. We've been in the Old Testament for the other six messages in this series, but we're in the New. And what we're going to find out is this. Jesus is on a rare trip outside of Israel. I mean, it almost never happened. He stayed in Israel almost nearly in the entire ministry, public ministry that he had. And his disciples surely are thinking this is a vacation. We're going to get a little R&R. They're going up to the Mediterranean coast. They're going to get a little bit of ocean time. They're going to have a lot of fun on the beach. All right, maybe not all that, but they are definitely, I am absolutely positive, thinking that this is a break from ministry. And it was really a mission trip that he was taking them on. And the goal was to train his disciples, but at the same time, to deliver a mother's daughter from a demon that was ravaging her entire family's life. Here we go in verse 24. We're in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now they had been just previous to this on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. If you can 
picture that. That's 13 miles from north to south and roughly 6 miles east to west. And it's about a 30 to 40 mile walk to Tyre. So they're going to, they're going to the north up along the Mediterranean coast. And then after Tyre, they're going to go absolutely even more north to Sidon along the Mediterranean Sea. And again, the disciples have to be thinking, this is a break. For why else would Jesus take them there other than a ministry break? Because they're going out of the Jewish land and they're going into Gentile land. A Gentile is a non-Jewish person. That would be probably most of us. Well, that didn't really happen unless you were a merchant, a Jewish merchant. You pretty much stayed in God's promised land. Well, it had just been, right before this, just relentlessly difficult. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes had been coming at them. You look at the very beginning of chapter 7, you're going to see yet another of the latest confrontations. It is ramping up. It is getting more and more tense. And Matthew, by the way, hints at what I think is the disciples' mindset of a vacation. Look at what he says. They went away from there and withdrew. Now that's Matthew's gospel account of this. They withdrew. And Mark says Jesus did not want anyone to know that he was there. So, I mean, come on, you've just got to kind of get into the sandals of the disciples for a moment. They're, they're tired. This has got to be fatiguing. I've never experienced this, by the way. Yes, we've gone through cornerstone times where... We've had a disciplined board members. We've had a disciplined congregation members. It's been difficult times and seasons in my own life in ministry. But this is relentless. None of the established religion liked Jesus. They argued with him. They tried to trap him. Well, Jesus, though, is going to show them something. He's taking them to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Again, it's inhabited by Gentiles. And look at verse 25 of chapter 7 in Mark. When they arrived immediately. Now, by the way, look at me for just a moment. It's kind of annoying when I do that, isn't it? It's kind of important. Mark, this is, okay, men, look at me because I think we share something here. If you have a low attention span... God ordained Mark, the gospel, to be written for us, okay? It's why he uses the word immediately throughout the entire book. It's like the Reader's Digest gospel. It is the action gospel. So immediately, verse 25, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Not a good beginning to a vacation, it's like arriving at whatever resort you've booked for a week. And the very, oh, by the way, we did it. I've never told you this. We went to Disney once. That's the only time I ever want to go. I never need to go again. It's out of my system forever. We went to Disney once. We got to the resort. We walked into the room. And there in the middle of the living room is a at least two foot round pile of vomit. And I thought... Lord, if that's not an omen, I knew we shouldn't have come to Disney. This is kind of how that vacation started. Well, they get there. They think, I believe they think they're on a break, a ministry break. And here comes this woman falling down at his feet begging. Now, I really, now let's turn this a little bit serious for a moment. I really want you to answer this. And this is going to be hard for some of us to answer. 
when is the last time that you actually begged God for something? Now, I'm not asking you when's the last time you made a request to God. I would imagine that's probably today. When's the last time that you pleaded and begged God for something? That's a whole nother level. There is a desperation in that. Now, it would not be abnormal. I don't think it's unlikely that probably somebody or a few people in here have never done that. So it's going to be really hard for you to understand the urgency and the situation, the crisis of this woman. So I'm going to ask you to maybe artificially guess if you've never experienced pleading and begging to God. I have. So I can sort of channel that experience right now and get inside the life of this mom. When's the last time you have ever begged or pleaded from God? If never, well just imagine then the desperate urgency that's in her life, that's in her heart. Her little, it's not, a, it's not a teenage daughter, it's a little daughter, verse 25, a helpless little girl who is possessed by a demon. And this mom came and fell down at his feet and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, I'm going to help you a little bit with this. You ready? Now, this is why I like you having your own Bibles. You can kind of underline things, write it out in your margin. I'm going to tell you what it means literally translated from the Greek language. This is written in Greek, most of the New Testament, Little Aramaic, street Greek, kind of like southern country speak, where my wife came from. It's just common folk Greek. Here's what it literally says. This woman is repeatedly saying, my daughter is badly demonized. Over and over and over. That's a literal translation. It's not just my daughter has a demon. My daughter is badly demonized. Can I please put it in my paraphrase? This demon is absolutely destroying my daughter. Now, Mark's gospel, I told you it's a Reader's Digest, the word immediately, constantly throughout it. It's like a connection link for a chain. It keeps you moving, keeps you reading. Mark's actually uh, distinct for another reason as well. He records several encounters that Jesus had with demons. And he shows us, Mark does, that demonic activity was a widely seen problem of that day. The Jewish people believed that demons sat on thrones and hovered around cradles looking to devour infant babies. That's what they believed. They believed that there were 7,500,000 demons working feverish destruction. And certainly against God's people, most sharply against God's people, the Jewish people. In fact, they've recovered, archaeologists have, in ancient cemeteries, they've recovered skulls that have bones drilled in them, and then there's bone growth around them, meaning that the victim survived it, and bone growth happened. If they were dead, that wouldn't have happened. They survived it, and bone growth, well, that was one of the remedies to what was thought to be demonic activity, you actually drilled a hole in a living person's skull, believing that that's where the demon resided. They needed a way out. Most of them, obviously, died when that happened. 
but some have survived. They found the evidence. That extracted disc of bone, by the way, when they would drill that into the skull, they would take that and they would wear it as an amulet, if the person survived, to ward off evil because that demon would want to come back in. Now, this is all not biblical. This is ancient you know, remedy treatments. It's not the power of God to take out a demon. It's the power of God is through prayer, through the exercise of truth, the claiming of God's power, greater is he in us than he who is in the world. But they had other attempts. They would take foul-smelling roots and they would shove them up the person's nose, thinking that the demon would be driven out from the stench. Now, there were other remedies, but let me just move on. Demons were particularly active when Jesus walked the earth. So it is no surprise that a desperate mother comes to him for help with her demon-possessed daughter. Now, here we go. We've got the young church embodied in the disciples, right? They're going to they're gonna be the future church. Day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God is going to come into them, all but Judas, plus a replacement disciple, and all those gathered around. This is the beginning. These disciples that are with Jesus in Tyre and Sidon, they're the young baby infant church. So you would think... Of all people on the planet, they're going to be incredibly merciful, incredibly compassionate to this woman. They're going to respond gracious to her, graciously to her, tenderly to her. Well, look at verse 23 in Matthew 15. Might have to flip over there. In Matthew's account of this, and we'll be back and forth a little bit between Matthew and Mark. Matthew 15, verse 23 says, And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. So here we go. We've got two groups of people that are begging from Jesus. You've got one at his feet pleading over and over, My daughter is badly demonized. Will you please heal her? Will you please deliver her? But at the same time, the exact same Greek word, you've got the disciples begging over and over, Jesus, would you send them away? Would you send her away from us? I mean, this is amazing and sadly accurate for much of the church. Well, that's too general. That does nothing to help us. So you got to bring that down to a personal level. What would you have done if you're hoping to be on a vacation? In fact, let's just literally imagine that you are on a vacation and you are away from your stressful life. You've got one week off. You've been looking forward to this for months. You booked it months ago. You get on vacation and all of a sudden somebody calls you with a crisis. Their life is falling apart and they need your help how would you respond now let's just really be super honest maybe not much differently than the disciples did we would do it more artfully i think in prayer lord would you please send somebody to help that person because i'm not going to do anything i'm on vacation you understand god don't you See, this is sad, but it captures really a lot of us. She's begging, they're begging. What is Jesus going to do? You know, isn't it amazing? Let's just be a little more personal. Let's camp on this just a little bit longer. Let's pull it out. Pull out your heart for a moment. Isn't it amazing that we who know 
just how much mercy we've received from God. Give out so little of it. I'm, I'm right in the mirror on this one. This was a convicting point for me this week. I mean, we've got a grasp. The people in the world don't. The unbelievers don't get it. They don't understand the power of God's mercy. They've not yet received it. They've not yet come to the cross and, and pleaded with God. God, I know I'm a sinner and I deserve your wrath, but I know that you know I'm helpless in that sin. So you sent your son to die in my place. And I know as I'm expressing my faith to you and I'm placing my trust in you for my soul that you're going to forgive me. You're going to wash me of that. You're going to put my sins on Christ and give me his righteousness and you're going to save me for eternity so what incredible mercy Christian brother and sister we've received does it have an outflow I came across a quote this past week that struck me deeply and sadly Johann Wolfgang von Giethe the 18th century German writer he once prayed these words, Help me to discover thy truth, O Lord, and here's the sad part, and preserve me from those who have already found it. That would be the church. Help me to discover thy truth, O Lord, and preserve me from those who have already found it. We can be the most merciless people. Where we should be the most merciful But it's not really difficult to understand why the disciples were acting like this. Let's go back to Mark. Now look at that. You're going to get some clues. And we're, going to, we're going to build a bit of a profile for this Syrophoenician woman. Look at verse 26. This is loaded, by the way. A lot of insightful stuff here. For Mark tells us the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And let me tell you a few things that were absolutely in the disciples' eyes strikes against her. She didn't deserve the mercy. She's a woman. Now, ladies, there's a reason we're doing the Wonder Woman series. You know, the world, the demonically fueled world system, ladies, hates you. It hates you. You want to, give a, you want to get a little preview glimpse of that? Just focus on your checkout, checkout counter at your grocery store and see how impossibly beautiful those photoshopped pictures are and it's convincing you over and over you are just not ever going to add up to that you're not beautiful that's the world system that's fueled by the devil the world hates you don't think for a second that the world system because there's feminist movement movements going on don't think for a moment that they are for you they are for power political power they want to deconstruct the family and reconstruct it with women at the top that's what their agenda is and i read a bunch of those quotes last week to you the world hates you the culture at the time hated women in the first century She's already at a disadvantage in the ancient world of the Jews and Greeks. They looked at a woman as qualitatively lower than men. She's a Gentile, verse 26. There's a massive racial divide between Jew and Gentile. In fact, pious Jews thought that the Gentiles were created by God for fuel so that the fires of hell could burn. That's what they believed. They taught this. To them, only Israel was loved by God. All other nations he hated. It was absolutely against 
Jewish law to aid a Gentile mother to give birth to a baby because then you'd be responsible for bringing another Gentile into the world. If you were a Jewish person and you were traveling into Israel from Gentile land, they would stop at the border, they would take off their sandals, shake the dirt. They didn't want to bring the corrupt, filthy Gentile dirt into the land of God's promise. If a Jewish boy or a girl married a Gentile, you know what they would do? They would hold a funeral because touching a Gentile in any way physically is tantamount to death. So this is the Jewish mindset towards a Gentile. She's a woman. She's a Gentile, Mark says. By the way, clue, let, me, let me tell you this. These words are particularly there for you and I to understand what's going through the disciples' hearts. She's a Syrophoenician by birth. I'm quoting that, meaning she's a Roman citizen and Rome ruled the Jews and the Jews hated Rome. Matthew's gospel records this story. He adds she's a Canaanite. She's, a, she's from a people group that Israel had given permission to the Jewish people to completely kill them and wipe them off the planet. So she is from a people group that does, that does not deserve the Jewish mind to live. You see, the disciples were brought up Jewish. They were taught that God had given them a license to hate a person like this, to literally hate her, to despise her. Still more, she's from Tyre. Tyre was a stronghold of idolatry, Baal worship, false worship. It's where the wicked queen of Israel, Jezebel, was born. Her father was a king there. So you're going to be really hard-pressed to find a more difficult person for the disciples to love. Now you're starting to get it, I hope, why this is not really a vacation. This is a mission trip. He's doing something in the hearts of the disciples. And our wonder woman that we're really about to meet even more personally was about to teach the disciples a thing or two about faith and mercy. Now, I'm going to put it up on the screen so you don't have to keep flipping too much. But Matthew puts it like this in verse 22, chapter 15. Have mercy on me, O Lord, she cried out. Son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, you've got to remember, the Bible lacks grammatical devices like we have, like punctuation, like quotes, Underlying, bold, italics, exclamation points. It didn't have that in the Hebrew and Greek language. So it used hyperbole or repetition. So have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter. Here we go. There's a clue. This is huge. Is severely oppressed by a demon. Now I want you to see, though, she didn't claim that she was owed help by Jesus. She didn't come to him and say, Jesus, I deserve this. I'm a really good person. She's just a little girl. She shouldn't be allowed to suffer like that. She doesn't give any kind of a defense like that. Gives no motivation like that at all. For the nature of mercy is that it's given to those who don't deserve it. Now we're back to us. We who have received mercy in such great measure, do we give it especially? In fact, it can only be given to those who don't deserve it. Mercy cannot be given to somebody that deserves it. That's a paycheck. You're giving what you owe the person. So if you're giving mercy, that person did something or was something that didn't deserve it. 
But look at verse 23 in Matthew 15 on the screen. But shockingly, standoffishly, Jesus did not answer her a word. I mean, come on, this is not the Jesus that we know. This is just downright rude. His disciples are begging, send her away. And he says to them in verse 24 of Matthew 15, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. It's almost as if he's speaking to the disciples while she's there in earshot. He won't even look at her. I don't know about you, but man, I, I've actually experienced that. Oh, it's so angry. That, that's infuriating when that happens. You feel demeaned. You feel like you're not even worth their glance. Now, how does our God of compassion, Jesus, who would never snuff a flickering candle of faith, how's he going to respond when she falls at his feet and says, Lord, help me? Mark 7, verse 20 says, let the children be fed first. This is what he finally says to her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I don't know what you're thinking right now. I know what I was thinking when I've read this many, many times. It always strikes me. It hurts. It hurts me. It's like almost emotional and visceral that he would say that to her. I'm a parent. I have four kids. To think that one of my children was suffering like this and I'm praying to God and he, he first of all doesn't answer me. Come on, you've experienced that. God, are you even there? My prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Are they even getting to you? You're not responding. And then finally when he does respond, it is completely not in the way that I'm asking him to. I can feel that in my gut. It just sounds so incredibly cruel. Ladies, I'm going to ask you, what would have been your reaction and your suffering of a little child of yours in hearing this from Jesus? What would, you, what would have been your reaction? Would you have been filled with anger? Would all that desperate hope for your daughter vanish and leave you even in greater despair than you were before? Her daughter has a demon. It is destroying her life severely. No one's been able to help. It seems Jesus, you've heard about him. That's the only reason she went there to him. She's heard about him. It seems like Jesus just told her she's not even worth helping. Now, by the way, for you to understand how, well, I've used the word twice, how visceral this really is. Well, a feminist scholar years ago wrote a scathing article about Christ's response to this woman. The scholar, she argued that he was not sinless after all. He was chauvinistic. He wronged this woman. But I'm going to tell you, this feminist scholar did not understand the Greek language. So we're going to look a little deeper for a moment. We're going to see what Jesus was actually saying. Now, I have a Jewish lady in our church that loves me, and I love her. Her and her husband are awesome. But she got mad at me one time and jokingly called me a goy. Now, a goy is a dog. That wasn't very kind of her, right? We should pray for her. I should just drop her name. I wouldn't do that. Y'all know, some of y'all know who she is, but she's a good friend of mine. And she laughs every time I talk to her about this. That was a term of contempt to, for a Jewish person to call somebody a goy or translated dog was a term of contempt. Contempt, and I have to be really careful. I don't know. How, I couldn't figure out 
how to say this rightly, but it's really equivalent to our modern-day word that starts with a B. I, I hate being so elementary and rhymes with a witch. I, I know, it's so weird. I know. <laughs> Awkward. I just don't like profanity, so I couldn't do it here any, any either. But it's the same word. It's the same word. And Jesus, but Jesus used a different word for her. Now, I want you to hear this. you got to get this. The entire, the entire tone changes on this. He, he used a word for her that was for little puppies, which were allowed in the house, would be thrown scraps of food as they ate their meals. So they've got two words for dogs. One of the wild, mangy, contemptuous uh, dogs out in the street. And then they've got a word for the affectionate pet dog that you bring into the home with them. And one, of the, one other thing that you want to know is that the Jewish people, they didn't have forks, knives, spoons, and napkins. They didn't have those. What they did was they would take chunks of bread, they would break off the chunks, and they would use them to actually scoop the food, which was usually a gravy, often a gravy base, scoop the food into their mouths, and when they were done, they would wipe their hands on the bread and throw it on the ground for the floor for those little puppies. So with that understanding, what I just taught you, Jesus really didn't use a contentious word for dog, but the word for a little puppy that's allowed to be in the house and given scraps of food. So let's go back and look at this again. Verse 27, let the, let the children be fed first. What Jesus is saying, this is the gospel's teaching. The door of salvation was open now for Israel, the children of God. They were called to dinner, so to speak. God the Father called them to dinner. He rang the bell. Jesus came. He's preaching the gospel. I'm the Messiah. The Messiah is here. I'm about to give my life for you. It is open now. Get your food. Get saved. John the Baptist pretty much heralded that. The, the Gentiles, they're going to be called to the table in a little bit. In fact, that call is going to go clearly out in the Apostle Paul's ministry, Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It was a two-phasal approach. So now it's let the children eat first. It's open, Israel. Your Savior is here. Gentiles, you're coming. Listen for the bell. Now you ready? This is the best part of the message. This bold, audacious mother said, I'm not waiting. She responded, verse 28, yes, Lord, but yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You know what she's doing? She's going to the front of the line. You would do this for your daughter, wouldn't you? Your son, your little one. She's going to the front of the line. She's urgently getting ahead of the Jewish people. She's saying, Jesus, I need your saving power now. So move over, Jews. I'm moving my daughter to the table. That's audacious, powerful, mother-saturated praying. And gospels, the Gospel of Matthew records her courage and faith that it moved Jesus. Matthew 15, 28, Jesus says, A woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. That's the nature of faith. It is bold. It is audacious. It'll budge in line if it needs to. 
and her daughter was healed instantly. Wow. Well, there's several principles as we get this to the end. I'm not going to be much longer. The first one is your prayers, mothers, can move God to act for your children. Don't believe that's not true. That's a double negative. Believe that it is true. Your prayers can move God to act for your children. Mark records our Lord saying something even more necessary for mothers to hear. In chapter 7, verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. There's no faith from the daughter on biblical record. Listen, the daughter had no faith. She's not even asking Jesus for anything. She's a little girl. It's the mother's faith that moved God on behalf of her, of her daughter. That's extraordinary. So moms, your faith can move God to do things for your children. You've got to believe that. And if you're doubting, well, there, this is one of your gospel stories to reinflate your faith. This Wonder Woman mother, I don't know how she did. I think it's from hearing. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. I think she heard what Jesus had done, and somehow by God's power, she believed. Verse John 6, 37 says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Somehow she knew if I just get to Jesus, he's not going to drive me away. Which is why I like Philip Brooks, the old Puritan, who once said, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Now write that down, moms. Would you write that down? At least try to remember it if you're not going to write it down. Prayer is not somehow convincing God to do what he doesn't want to do. Prayer never does that. It is laying hold of what God is already willing to do. But will you keep pleading? Why do you think Jesus was speaking to the disciples while she's there? Would your faith get kindled to great action? But the second principle is do not pridefully appeal to God on behalf of human merit, but divine mercy. She didn't claim her own goodness. She didn't claim the innocence of her little girl. She appealed simply to Christ based on his mercy, God's undeserved favor and blessings. And by the way, we all know there are all kinds of tricks that we try to do with prayer. To get God to do the right thing. To get God to do what we want. We say the right things. you got to word your prayer carefully. If you word it right, it has maximum power. That is such a fallacy. There's nothing to do with your words. If you just get enough people to pray, get a huge prayer team. Get the whole church praying. If we gang up on God, he's going to work. That doesn't work. Tell God, God, I'm living faithfully. I haven't looked at, at anything bad for a long time. I've been really careful what's coming out of my mouth. I'm not in debt. We're working out of debt. So God, now that I'm acting and living faithfully, now will you move? That doesn't work. Quote to him the right verse. I mean, who doesn't like your own words coming back, right? Pastor Tim, do you remember what you said in that message? That really, wow, that feels good to hear that. Well, maybe God likes that. So God, I'm going to quote some of your verses. That's going to really get you in a good mood so that you really do what I want you to do. That doesn't work either. 
express enough confident faith, correct the, or possess the correct positive thinking? I mean, is that what it is? Word faith teachers tell you this. It's just positive thinking. You can dip down into the faith bu- bucket and you can make miracles happen. That's what they teach. None of these move God to act. Listen, simply, humbly cry out for his mercy with your hands empty, no attempt at persuading him, but your broken heart in need of his divine help. That's what moves God. So don't pridefully appeal to God on behalf of any human merit, but thirdly, put your faith in the right person. Now, this is absolutely comical. To me, there's one funny part in this whole story Matthew grabs it in his gospel. He records the disciples saying this to Jesus. I think I would be saying this too. I'm just like them. Send her away for she is crying out after us. And I'm really thinking through that. I'm going, well, she she was not crying out for the disciples. They were absolutely irrelevant to her. In fact, they were obstacles She was crying out to Jesus alone for mercy. She knew from where her help could come. Moms, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus immediately. Persist. Don't give up. For often the proof of faith is seen in persistence. And you can amaze God with your faith. Matthew's gospel records that she called Jesus the Lord, son of David. That was a title for the Messiah, the Savior of the world sent by God. I mean, this is amazingly theologically informed faith, better than what most in Israel were showing. In other words, she believed he's the Messiah. That's astounding for a Gentile. She didn't have some nebulous positive energy faith like so many claim. She just believing doesn't accomplish miracles. It's believing in Jesus, the Son of God. She didn't have faith in herself, nor that all things are just going to work out to get, you know, one day. She didn't put her faith in the disciples. Her faith went in one direction only, Jesus Christ, her only true source of help for her daughter. Now, I told you my principles were going to get us to the end pretty quickly, and we're about at the end, just actually maybe a minute or so from it. But I want to recap, because this is so amazing. They're up, what they think, on vacation. But they're on a mission trip. Because you've got the young church mired in mercilessness, and they've got to learn to get out of that and show mercy and love to all people. Or they're not going to get out of Israel with the gospel. But while they're on this mission trip, Jesus knew what was going on. He's sovereign. The Father sent him. The Spirit guided him. He's there in this town. Here comes a mom. She is absolutely desperate. Her child is severely possessed by a demon. It is wrecking her life fast. She gets in line in front of the line and says, Jesus, please. Be merciful to my daughter. That's pleading. That's begging. Over and over, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. My child is in captivity to drugs. My child is being neglected at school. My child is being bullied on the bus. My child has leukemia. 
Listen, I could go down the line, but whatever grabs your heartstrings at the deepest level of your gut, moms and dads, you've experienced it. This is what she's bringing to the Lord. It is visceral for the fourth time. It is emotional. It is passionate. It is saturated with faith. That should be you. That should be me. So moms, don't give up. Doesn't matter if things aren't yet turning the way you want. You do not give up. And you persist in prayer. You pray to the right person. You do not appeal on your, on your merit, but on his divine mercy. And you be audacious enough to get in line and break in line and get in front of everything else and say, I need your help. That's prayer. That's power. And there's not a Christian here that cannot pray that way. Amen?